Okay, Edith Stein or John Paul II? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> about what? No, no, there's Life. no about what. Just there's no about what. One. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moral theologian ask about what. <laughs> John Paul II. Mm, that was same. tough. Same? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. yeah. JP2 was a Thomist using the phenomenological method. Edith Stein was a phenomenologist. Welcome to the Dunces Corner. I am Dr. Brian Pedraza, and once again, I am joined by my dear friend and colleague, Dr. John Minert. Hello. I will say, Dr. Minert, after editing the last episode, all of your Sean the Demon references about hot dogs and noses, you had an uncanny ability of actually sounding like him. That's because I'm a demon. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed the trail of relish coming into the room. And, of course, Catherine the Great, whom I will try to not offend her entire generation in this episode. It's really hard sometimes. Yeah. We, we get really sensitive about everything. And you're currently <laughs> unbranded? I Yeah, I still haven't. No one's given me any offers uh, to, you know, buy any tattoos on my skin. So, you know, keep it coming. You know, if you want to, you can email the podcast with inquiries <laughs> about that. I do need money. So, you know. Yeah, I hear that. Theology majors all chasing the cheddar. And of course, Ansley, once again, who is our flag bearer for our theology program, our first major. You're like our first baby. We're like so proud of you. I know. Y'all are like all my dads. (laughs) (laughs) Five theology dads. (laughs) And Ansley, we have a new student joining us this week. Who is this dapper young man sitting next to you? (laughs) This is my fiance, Brady, who's also a theology major. Hey, everybody. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey. Hey. And then, of course, we have, as promised, a very special guest, Dr. Abigail Favalli, who's coming from George Fox University. I first had a chance to see Dr. Favalli at a conference at Notre Dame, and you were lights out good and a breath of fresh air. You were witty intelligent, somewhat snarky, and I loved your braveness instead in front of bishops, no <laughs> doubt. I mean, there, I remember one slide that I'm pretty sure was a sperm cell going into an egg and it said, oops, and I was like, wow, she is awesome. <laughs> Spectacular. Oh, thank you. You know, I do think being a convert was advantageous there because I don't think I realized the weight of being in a room full of bishops. These are just people. Yeah, so that was awesome. Um And thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So I figured we would start um, just to help by helping our listeners get a better feel for who you are and your story. You published this book, Into the Deep. Love the provocative cover, by the way. Did you have a say in the cover? I had nothing to do with it, but oh. I also love it too. Oh, good. Good. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to read one of the blurbs on the back. So, I know Tim O'Malley, and this is what he had to say about this book. Y'all ready for this? Yes. Religious conversion narratives tend to be unrealistic, focusing on single epiphanies that are rare to most human beings, not into the deep. Abigail Favalli has written a conversion memoir that focuses on the slow process of conversion. 
one that unfolds through a union of practice and intellectual inquiry. She's more like a tour guide, bringing even cradle Catholics like myself into a deeper appreciation of the mystery of the Church. Okay, that is true. I had that feeling when I was reading the book too. And then here's the last line. Into the Deep is Augustine's Confessions, written for our age. Boom. Whoa. (laughs) Your name and Augustine were using the same sentence. Yeah, it's ridiculous. People use my name and (laughs) Augustine in the same sentence, but it usually includes a not like. (laughs) So that's pretty powerful praise. It is. It's a little hard to live up to. You now <laughs> say something about it. No. <laughs> Tell no. us how awesome you are. No. Yeah, right. <laughs> I thought that Tim would just say something like, a tour de force. And that would be it, you know? Like how they always put on movies. Right. That's the, yeah. <laughs> that's the one word. A tour de force. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will say, though, um, it's interesting because there's a chapter in here where you do contemplate Augustine's own conversion in relation to yours. So I thought maybe that would be an interesting lens by which to start this. Ooh. So, um, you know, most of us here are familiar with the Confessions and have read at least significant portions of it. So what is it about Augustine's conversion that you think really dovetails with yours? Hmm. Oh, that's a great place to start. So I did not read the Confessions until after I had become Catholic. I learned in my training in graduate school in feminist studies to loathe Augustine without ever having read him. So um, all my Augustine prior to reading him, reading his confessions was filtered through feminist theology and philosophy. And he was kind of considered the the person who single-handedly you know, derailed Christendom into this hatred of the body, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was shocked when I read the confessions um, because I saw this great love for the body in his writing, and a great love for his mother. So he wasn't this body-hating, woman-hating figure that I'd sort of been led to believe that he was. But some of the things that struck me that I related to in terms of my own conversion were, first of all, just the overlap of uh, similar stages in our lives, similar things happening. So uh, we both kind of grew up Christian in a certain way. You know, I mean, he was raised Christian a little bit when he was um when he was a kid, primarily by his mother. You know, I grew up in a evangelical Christian home. Um and then through his education, he kind of went away from that. And that was similar to my to my experience. And he describes basically the decade of his twenties coming under the influence of a philosophy called Manichaeism. And there's this part in the book where he describes being fed on glittering myths during this time. And when I read that, that I thought that's perfect. That describes perfectly my own experience in my 20s of being fed on these glittering myths of kind of feminist theory and feminist theology. And uh, we both became Catholic um, in our 30th year of life. So just seeing these parallels, um, even just in terms of the ages in which things happened, I began to see that my kind of decade of feminism basically being my ideology or my religion um, as being similar to his journey through Manichaeism and and how hard it is to come out of that and to enter into a new way of seeing and thinking. And I also really related to Augustine's struggle with sexuality. That was certainly a part of my, my past as well um, and a desire to sort of 
give one's sexuality over to God and have that be totally transformed. So I was shocked how much I related to Augustine when I actually read his conversion. Yeah. The first time I read the confessions, for me, it was like a page turner. Like I couldn't believe <laughs> this ancient work was like, I was like, I, I, I can't put this down. I have to keep reading. Um, my wife actually, she actually said something similar in reading your book. You know, I had to actually like wrestle this away from her today. I actually didn't get it here, but she's about 50 pages in it. And she's like, I can't put this thing down. Hmm. Yeah. The line that you mentioned, sort of what you had previously thought about Augustine, I thought there was a great line which captures a little bit of uh, at least your writing style in this book. Let's see. Along with his beloved Plato, Augustine is the philosopher non grata for feminist theologians. He's charged with more or less derailing the entire project of Christianity with his sexual hang-ups, his distaste for the body, his preoccupation with sin, and his misogynist views. If it weren't for Augustine, so the tale goes, Christianity might have developed its full potential as a creation-loving, shame-eschewing, non-dogmatic faith system full of hugs and priestesses. <laughs> Where's that wit come from? <laughs> Is that just natural to your personality, or did it, uh, you know, things that you read? I don't know. It's so hard to to self-analyze in that way. But I, you know, I did think some of the, it was very freeing to be able to write in that way. I think about, you know, the kind of worldview I'd come from, which very much was one of a Christianity of hugs and priestesses, you might say. So part of that, I think, is just me using humor um, in a cathartic way, I think, of um, not not trying to like totally poke fun at the worldview I came from, but also I guess to to see some of its absurd sides. Yeah, I, I think it's you use it really well. Like there's something disarming about it the way that you use humor. So, has anyone I, read Jerome? I mean, next to <laughs> next, next to next, next to Augustine. Augustine. Oh my gosh. Jerome looks way worse. Oh, he's <laughs> totally worse. So you I need to start a new paradigm. Oh right? yeah, Jerome no. ruined everything. You know, it's funny. His feast day was just the other day, right? And mm-hmm. I, I remember I was looking at my like breviary app, and it pops up, and I was like, oh, Jerome. You know, I, <laughs> I still have a. I have to. I have to re reacquaint myself with Jerome. I remember when I was an undergrad in Oxford, writing this whole paper on his. Um, ad Jovinium, I think was mm-hmm. where he was writing against Jovinium, and he had a very sort of anti-marriage um, line that he was pushing. And so a lot of um, a lot of anti-marriage stuff tends to come out as anti-woman. So um, yeah, you know, I need to I need to read more Jerome. Give him a second. I'm surprised chance. he hasn't studied more in feminist circles, though. If Augustine's the persona non grata, I mean, might as well go to Jerome. I don't know. Well, Jerome's there too, you know. Oh, he is okay. definitely. Okay, yeah. Well, Dr. Monert, maybe your next Thomas article will be the Jerome for our age today. Yeah, where I advocate that everyone who's married has only secondary virtues. (laughs) (laughs) A second level of virtue. Which is true for most of us who are married, but not because we're married. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I thought it'd be interesting to sort of walk through the stages of your conversion as you've, as you've presented them. But I'm actually really interested in hearing, you know, some people will look back on their past and sort of be done with it and say, like, I'm so glad I'm like not like that anymore. 
But I seem to gather that there are important things that you took from every stage that seem to endure like in who you are now. So um, for instance, you were raised as a non-denominational evangelical. Is that right? Yeah. And I'm thinking especially just in light of you know, recent stories about certain evangelicals who now are like walking away from the faith. Yeah. They seem to be manifold now. And mm-hmm. it's actually shocking for me because I was um, really brought to my faith through a Protestant friend. And mm-hmm. so there's that sort of flavor to the beginning of my like real grappling with Christianity. And so to see like, you know, there's this band called Cademan's Call yeah, and they're, was, you know, Derek yeah. Webb was mm-hmm. like, he was an all-star for me. Like I mm-hmm. loved his songs in particular and to see him walking away and the sort of things that he said, I'm just like, man, this is crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but now, you know, the Hillsong guy, mm-hmm. uh, Joshua Harris, who yeah. we've written about. So, I don't know, just in light of this, like, is there something that you take with you from your evangelical upbringing? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I I learned a she very She still sens- reads the Bible. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's true actually. Um <laughs> it's uh it comes in handy knowing the Bible really well actually as a Catholic. So, it's like you have a special superpower. <laughs> um so, yeah, I went through a phase of hating the Bible for sure, but it's been it's been wonderful to kind of rediscover my childhood love of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament, especially Genesis. Genesis is such a trip. It is a weird world, and I love it so much. Um, so I think, in a way, being immersed in kind of the weird, strange darkness of the Old Testament, I find um, kind of a, a home in the weird, strange darkness of Catholicism a little bit, because Catholicism also has a strange, otherworldly side to it, um, which I I think is reminiscent for me of the world of Genesis in some ways. Uh, but I definitely also learned a very sincere love of Christ and a sense um, of giving one's heart to him. You know, that's, that is, it's not the only thing about the Christian faith that matters, but it's so central. And I think that Oftentimes when deconversion happens, it happens, it begins there. And even though the, the deconvert might eventually find reasons that help them feel good about walking away from the faith, I think the walking away begins with closing one's heart off to Christ. Hmm. And the reasons come later. Um, because all of us have doubt, all of us have difficulties, but there's, I think, a decision we can make in how what we do with our heart in those times and whether we sort of close ourselves off from grace and perhaps cease praying, cease any kind of spiritual praxis and just let this be like this intellectual wrestling. Um, and once you let that, let the doubt and difficulty recede only up into your head and it becomes no longer, or the heart's no longer at play. I think in a way the horse has already kind of left the barn at that point and, um, the, the deconversion unfolds from there. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe Dr. Meinert can speak more about this, but sometimes I wonder if, and it's hard because I, I, I don't want to sound like judgy about everybody's stories, the people who are like falling away. And I'm sure there's all sorts of things that are going on in their lives, but just, you know, we have to make attempts to try and characterize things and try to understand them. And I wonder if um, part of it has to do with, maybe the approach to the Christian life that 
um, was present at least in some of the evangelicals that I knew and who were really influential on me, where it's like salvation happens in this moment. And then the sort of like the Christian life is like the proof mm-hmm. of it having happened, right? Whereas more, you know, the as I've come to understand my own Catholic faith, you know, I think of sort of the patristic way of seeing like the Mount of the Beatitudes. And it's like, this is something you're going to have to ascend and mm-hmm. only by God's grace can you do it. But it's, it, it takes steps and you fall back and then you, you know, sometimes you feel like you're barely hanging on and then you just keep going, but it's this mm-hmm. growth in virtue that eventually gets you there. And, you know, to see the stories of these people who have fallen away, like reading like Derek Webb's story, especially, mm-hmm. you know, he was, um, he divorced his wife. Yeah. He was addicted to pornography and his take was just like, he's, it's like the Calvinist framework is like through him, like, and it's still with him even having left because he's like, you know, now that I've given up Christianity, I'm actually like working on things to get myself out of my addiction. I feel like I'm Mm. more, you know, quote unquote Christian than I've ever been in my life. But it's just, you know, I feel like I wish I could say like, there's another like vision of the Christian life. That's that where you wouldn't Mm. have to leave it, you know? Yeah. Yes. You agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something I don't, I don't know what to make of this um, because, of course, again, like every experience of deconversion is, I'm sure, very personal and particular. But at the same time, I can't help but notice a pattern of these very high-profile deconversions. They're almost always coupled with divorce, and I'm, I don't know, I'm really fascinated by that correlation, and I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Um, I don't know. And I, again, maybe it's impossible because it, it varies so much, but nonetheless, it strikes me that it, it seems to disintegrate together. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's something very biblical, Old right. Testament-y about that, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 The disillusion of covenants kind of all at the same time, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then um, I'm sure I'm skipping over major parts of your story here, but it seemed that when you got to college, uh, a significant change happened, at least mm-hmm. on two fronts, as I read you. It's sort of the introduction to liturgical Christianity and the introduction to feminism. Like, what was that like for you? Yeah, and that's that describes it perfectly. It very much happened quickly in my freshman year, both of those things. And for a while, they ran parallel. So in my freshman year, by the spring semester, I remember I was writing a term paper the title, which was God is a feminist. <laughs> and I remember like emailing it to my mom, like, ha, you know, <laughs> thinking like, I wonder what she'll think about this or something. You know, I was already, I was already sort of radicalized by then. But, um, and I, the, what, what precipitated that was a New Testament class where we were looking at some of the, the trickier passages in the New Testament about women, one of which was in first Corinthians 11, um, where it there's a verse that says something to the effect of woman is the glory of man and man is the glory of God. And I read that um, and I thought, what could this possibly mean? It seems clearly to establish a hierarchy where men are closer to God than women. That doesn't seem right. So I remember asking my professor about it and he sort of just kind of shrugged and moved on. And, and then I thought, oh, I, I've got to figure this out. And that's when I began reading uh, feminist hermeneutics of scripture and and as soon as I discovered this thing of feminism, I was I was like, yes, this is what I've been looking for. And then simultaneously, I began to worship at a small Anglican house church. One of my professors was also an Anglican priest, 
And that was my first encounter with a liturgical form of worship, Eucharistic worship, and the saints, and this whole world of Christianity that I had never before had access to. And so I kind of fell in love or just fell in into both of these things at the same time. Um, and, you know, the nice thing, or I mean, the difficult thing about Anglicanism is that you can kind of be Anglican and believe almost anything, you know, you can, there's a big spectrum, right? And so for a while there, I could be very feminist and also be very devoutly Anglican. Um, but eventually, the feminism became primary, I think. So there was this semester when I was at Oxford, where I was going to evening prayer almost every day. I was writing these papers on Julian of Norwich and Hildegard of Bingen. And this was that was like the summative experience where my Anglican Christianity and my Christian feminism were in such a harmonious place. Um, but then this shift happened where I began to more and more embrace what, what you call feminist hermeneutics of suspicion, where I began to have a suspicious orientation toward Christianity. And who knows, maybe that semester it was reading Jerome. Maybe that was a part of it that <laughs> that fueled the flame of my feminist suspicion toward Christianity, toward the Bible, toward tradition. And as that suspicion grew, my faith diminished. And so by the end of college, I had stopped going to church altogether. I had stopped praying liturgically. And um, I had really kind of gone full steam into into feminism as my religion, basically. Yeah. So I guess staying on the same track, do you feel like you take, you've kept any of those two things with you? I mean, it seems uh, clear that a sort of liturgical thing kind of helped, or at mm -hmm. least could have helped usher you into the Catholic Church. But um, is there something of that experience of the, you know, the liturgy in the farmhouse? And then is there anything mm -hmm. that you still take from uh, the way that you viewed feminism then, that still kind of stays with you now? Yeah. In a way, I feel like I've circled back to that moment a little bit. I've returned to, for example, reading Hildegard of Bingen, writing about her. She's my confirmation saint. Um, and that semester, I wrote about her concept of gender. And I was reading like Prudence Allen, you know, that semester, who's a Catholic philosopher of woman. And so now in this sort of Catholic stage of life, I've returned to that stream in the tradition that fem like feminist theology and religious studies completely overlooks. So I got a taste of it that semester and then kind of went more with mainstream um, feminist thought and never really looked back. But now as a Catholic, I'm discovering this rich tradition of theologians and philosophers and saints who, especially in the last century, are have incredible theologies about men and women that I never even knew existed. And so it's it's been wonderful to discover this new world, even though I'm still passionate about women, you know, I'm still passionate about these issues. And and I I I've come to that's a consistent sort of interest and passion of mine. And now I feel like that's coming to fruition in a new way. Yeah. What what did the professor say when he received the paper that said uh God is a feminist? <laughs> How'd you do on that paper? <laughs> I, was, I I got an A on that paper. But I'm a really good writer, so I don't know. He probably <laughs> didn't even really read it. Actually, it, it's funny. For that, um, the final assignment in that course, we could either memorize the Sermon on the Mount or write an essay. And I was the only student who chose to write an essay. So he probably <laughs> didn't even read it. He was probably just like, all right, A. 
I don't know. Maybe he was afraid of me. I'm not sure. Maybe it was a good essay. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I made my case. Maybe it was both. Do we read the essays? Do we, are we supposed to do that? <laughs> Is that part of my job? Is that why I have A's? Are you supposed to like just toss them in the air That's and then there's an A zone yeah, 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 and a B yeah. zone? Yeah, yeah. And they just yeah. land. Mm-hmm. It's the bell curve. No yeah. Yeah. The I actually have a poster of a bell curve and I just kind of... <laughs> there's no way dr Meyer could just throw stuff in his office and hope it that's actually true that i've been in his office for those who don't know dr Miner is a hoarder <laughs> <laughs> i throw stuff on the floor in my office all the time have you, you seen do? the floor i have Neither seen the floor but it's a hoarder of one particular thing Right. knowledge well, it's a special kind of hoarder knowledge knowledge that's right it's another name for thomas I mean, that's kind of what professors do. They they stack their offices with books, many of which they may have not actually read. Um, Ooh, exactly. But, exactly. you know, to give a sense of like, it's just an this, aura. Is, my, this yeah. is my authority, that's my right. knowledge, you know, witness it. You but come I think in, you- I just say things. They don't even have to be intelligent. <laughs> you just think they're intelligent because there's books behind me. Exactly. And above you and below right. you right. and exactly. looming over you. Yeah. Exactly. I feel like you have enough books to like make a sort of Game of Thrones like throne chair. Ooh. You know what that Ooh, looks that's like? That's a fantastic yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah. So, so I feel instead like, of the office chair, you just mm-hmm. make a book chair. A book chair. Oh, and that's gosh. where your authority comes and from. And I sit in it. You know, yes. by, by the time that happens though, you're not going to have any students in there. You couldn't fit them. <laughs> that's the point. That may, actually, that may actually make you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> it would. I have this particular student who keeps showing up and telling me I'm a hoarder. I'd, I'd, I'd like to get rid of him. I don't know who it is. So, Catherine, as you're hearing Dr. Favali talk, I mean, you took a little journey uh, oh. from feminism to embracing, I don't know, I, I, would you say that you've even left that in sort of really taking on your Catholic faith or what's it been like for you? It's interesting. I, um, I'm just in awe, right? Being next to you. I didn't know a lot about, um, you and your work, uh, prior to about an hour ago. Um, (laughs) I did research a bit. I did research a bit for this podcast. Um, but in high school, especially early high school, like freshman, sophomore year, I was what you might consider like a Tumblr feminist, kind of like there are no rules, um, like everything's just kind of like how you feel. If you feel this way, then like that is what you are. Um, And I kind of – I fell into that just because like, you know, you get on Tumblr because you – you like fan things, you like mm-hmm. Harry Potter, and the next thing you know, you're like a very radical feminist, right? <laughs> it's like, wh- how did I get here? What's happening? I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think like just hearing you speak is, is so it, – it reminded me of the where I came from um, and just, yeah, where, I, where I've come from. I'm trying to form an actual thought here. Um, how did you get from there to now? That's a good question. Sometimes I ask myself that. I think it, it's truly by the grace of God. Um, I always, even though being a, a Tumblr feminist, like you, even in that, I always had the, this devout f- faith towards, um, the Lord and towards Jesus. Um, which, yeah, you'd think it would conflict. Like you said, you'd think it would conflict, but I, I just, you know, the cognitive dissonance was very strong in me. <laughs> um, but I, I think I, I transformed or I I sort of moved away from it just as I got older and I kind of realized I started studying philosophy. Um, My senior year, I took a philosophy class, which, you know, 
um, sometimes philosophy can get you to further away, but, um, mm-hmm. it brought me closer in just the sense of like, yeah, there has to be rules, right? Like things have to follow, um, a certain way, like definitions are important. And this sort of Tumblr feminism just stopped making sense because there didn't seem to be rules sometimes. Um, and it's interesting because like I, during that time, was also surrounded by friends who were who I loved dearly and I still love dearly. Um, but you know, it was almost a sort of badge that you'd wear mm-hmm. of like, oh, like I'm this gender, I'm this sexuality, mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff. And if you didn't have that, it was like, oh, I'm straight, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> it's just this normal thing. So um part of it came from this like also yearning to be different and yearning mm-hmm. to to fit into that. Um but what broke me out of that was studying philosophy and just realizing that it it, it no longer made sense um, just in that sort of way. Uh, it's funny because when I initially started um, – when I was in that sort of Tumblr feminist mindset, but I was, I was still Catholic, I was like, you know what I want to teach? I want to teach – because uh, I always wanted to be a, a theology teacher, but I was like, I'm going to teach like morality and sexuality and it's going to be mm-hmm. great, right? <laughs> um, I'm going to like show people that like you're still a person, like you're still loved. Like that was a big emphasis for me and it still is, but now it's like, I want to love you, but I also want to bring you to the truth. Um, and so that's why I'm still studying theology. But yeah, why I'm Catholic still, grace of God. Like <laughs> he was very kind and gentle towards me and just not letting me uh, fall completely off the tracks. It's hard to find a more Augustinian answer than that. Really. <laughs> like grace is what yeah. made you cross over, you know? That's amazing. And it's funny too, because Dr. Favala, you actually mentioned actual grace in one of the mm-hmm. chapters of your book, and it took me back to this. Wait, actual grace or like actual grace? <laughs> as opposed to a habitual? Yes. I got to read the book. Yes, <laughs> I know. <laughs> you just lit Dr. Minor on fire. Well, it's funny because- uh, back when I was a high school teacher, my principal asked me to go with the other theology teacher to uh, this meeting at the diocese. I'll leave it unnamed, uh, where the bishops had just come out with the um, doctrinal framework for high school curricula, mm-hmm. which, um, at least in the catechetical world, like catechism and doctrine are like curse words. You don't say them like in front wow. of anybody. And so I had... I was profoundly impacted by the catechism. Like mm-hmm. after my Protestant friend really helped me see that Christ was alive and that I could be in a relationship with him, I was like, you're Presbyterian, I'm Catholic. Like, what's the difference? And so I started going through the catechism and I started, it was like an Emmaus experience, you know, yeah. like my heart is like burning. Like I didn't, this was here the whole time and I didn't even know about it. But I go to this meeting and I am the only person who like cares about mm. the catechism. I guarantee you, or at least the other people just didn't say anything, but it, would, it just seemed like a mocking session of the mm. church's doctrines. And one guy literally said like, <laughs> like people would care about the difference between habitual and actual grace. And I was just like, <laughs> and then you put it into your book and I'm like, yes, vindication, there it is. Yeah, it's genuinely Augustinian. Um, now we just got to get people to care about the second degree of infused contemplation. That yes. There. The, uh, yeah, your next article. What? <laughs> What's the third degree? The third There's degree. No third degree. Is there a fourth one? The second degree. Oh, that sounds kind of lame. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, maybe you could reach it and then tell us about it. If that was an insult, it went completely over it my wasn't. head. It oh, wasn't thank you. I he appreciate just giving you your next the paper compliment. Topic. Yeah. Yeah. Gabriel Lagrange and John of the Cross. 
bring them together, Catherine. He was a big John of the Cross fan. He wrote yeah, a book absolutely. on absolutely. Um, yeah, he's unjustly maligned as some kind of manualist Thomas, but he wrote really well about the spiritual life. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was actually just thinking about John Paul II because he did his uh, doctorate under, he wrote under Garriger. Did you know that? Yeah. 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 He That's why he's suspect also. He didn't like, <laughs> is that what? <laughs> <laughs> Garrigou didn't like his emphasis on subjectivity, but, you know, anyway, the influence is there. The last stage I wanted to uh, look at was, I'll sort of combine them, though I don't think you combined them in your book, but one of them, you said, motherhood broke you open. And I want to read this um, hmm. this quote. It's actually where my wife's bookmark is. So either she put this there because this is the page she's on, or she just really liked you citing this passage from... Margaret Atwood. This is how Atwood's story ends, hinting at the transfiguration that has occurred in the life of Jeannie, the woman who just gave birth. And then here's the quote from her. After that, the baby is carried in, solid, substantial, packed together like an apple. Jeannie examines her. She's complete. And in the days that follow, Jeannie herself becomes drifted over with new words. Her hair slowly darkens. She ceases to be what she was and is replaced gradually by someone else. How was it that motherhood broke you open? Hmm. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's hard to describe. It's hard to put into words the experience of becoming a mother, all levels of it, the bodily experience as well as the spiritual and emotional and personal. Um, but it definitely played an enormous role in my conversion. Because I think in order for the grace of God, the actual grace of God, to have an effect on me, the the armor that I had put on, that feminist armor that I had put on had to be weakened or there had to be some kind of chinks in that armor. And becoming a mother was uh, the the huge way in which that happened. And that was for a few reasons. And one of them was simply experiencing the full reality of my physicality as a woman. I think in feminism, there tends to be this implicit, sometimes explicit suspicion of the female body and ambivalence toward it. And I think especially in kind of Tumblr modes of feminism, more a sense that, you know, gender is fluid, women and men are interchangeable, there aren't really meaningful differences anymore. And experiencing those very real differences uh, was kind of shocking. <laughs> and it, it made me realize like, okay, wow, like being a woman is a reality, not something that is simply a preference that I've chosen for my life, but actually um, this, this bodily reality over which I, I have no control. Mm. Um, but it's also very beautiful and powerful. And the experience of pregnancy and becoming a mother and lactation, all these experiences really undermined, I think, the central value of feminism, which is autonomy. Um, I think contemporary feminism is very much built on this idea that what freedom and empowerment and the good life look like is autonomy. And it's a kind of autonomy that I think is based on a fantasy of the, the male experience, and which is why things like pregnancy and fertility are seen as more of a threat to that kind of autonomy, things that have to be managed. And uh, in some cases, gotten rid of. And 
that value system ceased to have explanatory power in my life after I became a mother. And I also became the mother to a son. And I had expected, of course, to, you know, my first child would be a daughter. Like this would make sense in the sort of feminist narrative of my life. But um, so finding my life suddenly connected to the tiny life of a male human being, it just expanded my world beyond the narrow feminist lens. And it wasn't as though it immediately made me change my views. I think it just put me in a place where I was willing to ask questions that I hadn't asked before. And I was willing to see some of the gaps in feminist thought and the ways in which it can be pretty simplistic and reductive. And also, it very much began to shift my attitude toward the celebration of abortion in feminist, contemporary feminist rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, that that really began to chill me, seeing that on Twitter, you know, people tweeting because celebrating a shout your abortion and some, you know, some someone I didn't, I saw someone tweet like, oh, I'm, I feel left out because I haven't had an abortion, right? As if, as if abortion was this kind of feminist rite of passage in becoming a woman and seeing that kind, that, that attitude, um, it really began to push me away from feminism more at a kind of emotional and heart level. Mm. And I think that just enough that there was kind of a gap for God's grace to work in my life. How has your view of autonomy changed since like your conversion? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, well, there's a sense in which becoming an individual, becoming independent is very important in, in the Christian life. I think God gives us an enormous amount of freedom, probably more than we often want. And so if there are, you know, social structures or parents or individuals who try, you know, to enslave the person, you know, that that interferes with the kind of freedom of the the individual to give himself or herself totally to God. So that freedom is really important. So there is a sense in which there there's a certain kind of personal freedom that's very important to the Christian life, I think. But autonomy as it's conceived in in feminism is often this sense of a resistance against interdependency. And I think in the Catholic worldview, there's much more of a sense of human beings as part of a cosmos, as part of a whole, as part of a reality greater than oneself, and having an obligation or a responsibility to others within that and to the health of the whole as well. And I think the the autonomy in feminism and even in kind of Protestantism, I think that I encountered that puts so much all the kind of power and authority is put on the individual. That can also be very um, crushing in a way when you're trying. There's almost this expectation that you have to figure everything out yourself. You have to look at all the different things that are an option, cobble together this form of Christianity that makes sense to you, and you almost have to build it from the ground up, right? And that's kind of what I did for myself in that in that decade. I made myself this sort of feminist-friendly version of Christianity. Um, yeah, so I think now I have much more of a sense that I am a human being and the most important meaning of my life is to be able to surrender myself in love and trust to God. That doesn't exactly jive with an idea of the ultimate purpose of my life being an autonomous individual. 
the person is relation, right, Dr. Miner? <laughs> <laughs> I was struck by what you said. I'm just thinking about human formation and how often our oftentimes our practices will lead and then our mind yes. kind of follows. Mm-hmm. That it was motherhood in some sense that led and then afterward you had to make sense of this new reality mm. and it just didn't it just didn't fit anymore. Right. How often I've seen that in in my life and in the lives of my children and other things like that. That it in some sense you have to get in and kind of start doing the good. Right. Yes. And then somehow your mind begins to make sense of it and you you make sense of the whole after that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I couldn't help but think back to the birth of our first son, which for me, it's just like, I don't know, a liminal moment. Like there, mm-hmm. there's nothing that could prepare you for just having a child. It sort of like changed everything. And, you know, we we packed the Vera Bradley bag full of the Christmas lights and had the giant bouncy ball, which she like barely, Definitely your barely first. used, you know? Oh, totally. And then we made sure we had this awesome, enormous, like hand-carved crucifix, which, you know, Adrian wanted. But I think um, just the way that it played out, like I was the one who looked more at the crucifix than she did. And, you know, I was by her side holding her hand and the crucifix was kind of like on the windowsill. And so it was sort of like her before me and then the crucifix. And I just kept on thinking like, this is so powerful. Like motherhood is like amazing. Like she's suffering to bring forth life. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is sort of the, you know, every Christian is called to be a priest, prophet, and king by being united to Christ. And that's like the motherly way of you know bringing forth that priesthood of christ you know bringing life into the world and i was just you know stunned and when he finally emerged like we hadn't told anybody his name because they were going to kick it back in her face and we were like better to just show him the baby and be like that's the name there i'm just like yeah that's got <laughs> but i name. guessed it right well yeah well, do you, you remember that me. i was at your house and you i was they were me. like oh what's the name going to be i was like well there's either john paul joseph or joseph john paul. <laughs> <laughs> you know me well but i i thought it would be like this total like biblical move to be like so fatherly be like his name is joseph but mm. i couldn't say it dang thing <laughs> like i i was pretty sure even though i made a peep like just niagara falls would have mm. fell from my face like i was just like so in awe of that moment it was mm. crazy i did say that there were two things and i didn't actually combine them but here's the second one a quote from one of dr minert's home girls flannery o'connor mm-hmm. the famous story of uh her at the dinner party and they're mm-hmm. talking about the Eucharist, and she says, well, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with it. Mm-hmm. So what is it about that that sort of resonated in your heart? Um, I don't know if it resonated as much as really haunted me. At the mm-hmm. time, I came across that quote, and I can't remember how I came across it, but it was during this time where I was basically deciding whether I was going to stay a Christian or not because I read that. And for a long time, I'd been living in a sense of cognitive dissonance because – my Christianity had become so nominal. I, you know, I had no real faith practice to speak of. If I said the creed, it was because I thought it was a nice metaphor. Everything to me had become just a symbol yeah. to Christianity, but I was still holding on to it. And that quote, I read it during this period of my life, and it just became this sort of haunting refrain in my in my mind because it forced me to face up to the reality that my faith had become purely symbolic. 
And why was I holding on to it? Um, and that kind of drove me into this, this sort of spiritual crisis. You know, I was working in a Christian college, but, you know, sp- sp- I was supposed to be forming my students spiritually. And I, I had no idea what I believed, really. I, n- I had nothing to share. I had nothing to share with them except just sort of doubt and angst, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, Flannery swept in and then um, began to haunt my dreams. <laughs> um, yeah. But then I, I think that, that that pushed me into a point where I I was really on the fence and I was going to get off, and and then God sort of pushed me abruptly into the Catholic Church mm. in, that, in that moment. Haunt's a good southern mm-hmm. flannery Christ word. haunted, yeah. Yeah. It's the south. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, let's open it up. Y'all, do you have questions for uh, Dr. Favali? What have y'all been thinking about? I've been texting. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Okay. I um I didn't know you were looking at your phone. I thought you were yeah. like, well, there's, you know, there's so many. Um, uh, something that I've been wondering about, and it, it's a very practical question of just like, from my own experience in high school, having fallen so easily far away um and necessarily so i think the fall kind of made me grow stronger in my faith but my question is like how can catholic high schools um specifically like better approach these sensitive topics such as like sexuality and gender without being condescending and without um kind of pushing people away and closing doors um but without shying away from the truth as well yeah that's super tricky and it might not be possible to tell the truth and not push anyone away, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the sense that you know, to speak the truth sometimes when people, you know, if you don't want to hear it, then, you know, you've sort of pushed someone away. But I, you know, we're called to speak the truth in love, right? Mm-hmm. And I think those, both of those elements are essential. So you, if you're, if you're speaking love, but leaving out the uncomfortable truths, you're not speaking truth. But if you're if you're just sort of hammering someone over the head <laughs> with, you know, dogma and rules and encyclicals, <laughs> yeah. you know, without an attention to the person in front of you and what they they might need, um, then that's also the wrong approach. But I I do think that that any kind of spiritual formation or Catholic education or Christian education absolutely needs to be talking about these very issues. Because if the church does have a robust response to questions about sexuality and gender in our time, and there's real beauty and wisdom there in our theological tradition and among just the men and women in the communion of saints, there are these resources, um, but I think we're afraid to use them because they're not PC, because they, um, they don't. They don't sort of fit the narrative of just affirmation of all things. Um, but I think then to be – to out of fear not provide the truth to students I think is also um, just a kind of, you know, agreeing to be conquered, I guess, by kind of the cultural juggernaut. So um, it's – I mean, it's tricky. I don't have like this curricular, you know, kind of thing I've sort of figured out. But um, – I think you have to teach um, philosophical and theological principles about mm-hmm. reality. Um, 
I think what, what thing can be tricky about, say, issues of homosexuality, the only kind of other narrative that people often hear is just the one that's like, gay people are awful, they're bad, you know, you're the worst, right? So most people assume that um, any kind of – if you don't affirm same-sex relationships, then you are a homophobic bigot, right? So yeah. the trick is then to somehow get then into that middle Taylor space. Swift's, uh, <laughs> Taylor Swift's uh, whatever yeah. that – yeah, she music dissed. Video she she dissed us all. Yeah. 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 Right. Of course. You know. I mean, you. Yeah. You'll end up on. You know, Twitter. Whatever. You'll get dissed. That's fine. I mean, I think we have to be okay with that. We have to be mm-hmm. okay with with getting dissed. Um, but I think to really capitalize on the beauty, I think the beauty of Catholic teaching about um, gender and sexuality is really compelling. And there are those who are receptive to hearing it, and then those yeah. who aren't receptive to hearing it. You know, and um, you can't force everyone to be persuaded by your argument, of course. Yeah. I think what you said about, um, loving them too, and like saying it with love is very mm-hmm. important as well of just like, yeah. Cause I feel like some people when they're condescending and like they come out at, they come at it teaching in a sort of way of like, you can't do that. Like, because mm-hmm. I'm trying to control you and that sort of right. like, you know, um, instead of this, like, I love you as a person, and because I love you as a person, I want um, the best for you, and I want you to be free. Right. And also, that very much – I mean, the one thing I like about the Catholic teaching on sexuality, as opposed to, say, what I grew up with in evangelical Protestantism, evangelical Protestantism, it's really sort of like, okay, don't do anything, but then as soon as you're married, it's fine. And so it really is kind of saying, like, there's this kind of standard for heterosexuals and this like opposite standard for homosexuals. But in the Catholic tradition, there's actually a kind of a shared standard for everyone. Mm-hmm. So even if you are married, it's not just like, yeah, you know, do whatever you want sexually, right? You still mm-hmm. have to live out this ethic of chastity, which requires that you're kind of orienting your desires and loves in a specific direction through self-control and effort and prayer. And it's it's not just a free-for-all, mm-hmm. right? So I think a way of talking about the Catholic view of sexuality is a way of acknowledging like we're all in the same boat here. We're mm-hmm. all in the same boat. We all have wayward desires that are that you know if we follow them will take us off the rails. Mm-hmm. Right? And we all need grace um in order to live holy lives where we are able to sort of you know love God through our bodies, right? And so how do we do that? Right? So there isn't this separate categorization of people according to desire. And I, so I think there really is potential for this kind of different narrative about sex altogether in the, in the Catholic tradition, if we're sort of brave enough to kind of talk about it publicly and try to give compelling accounts of it. Yeah. So Dr. Favale, going off of what you said, um, I read your book. It was amazing. I totally recommend it. Thank you. But from my understanding, you and your husband, once you got married, started practicing natural family planning. Well, once I became Maybe. Catholic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we had been married, let's see, when was that? So 2014. We'd been married eight years at that point. So contraceptions, contracept, we contracepted um, until I became Catholic. Well, until I got pregnant with my son um, because I became Catholic when I was still TMI, you know, like <laughs> lactating and hadn't got my cycle back. So I never went back on birth control after my son or very briefly really and then I – was quite relieved when someone basically gave me an excuse not to go back on birth control. So then we started practicing natural family planning. 
with my experience of this, a lot of people don't aren't comfortable with the pill and some yeah. forms of hormonal contraception, but they don't know why. Yeah. Um, just talking to some classmates of mine, I'm like, the truth is so good. I wish mm-hmm. I can share it. I'm not good at, mm-hmm. you know, always articulating these things that have to do with biology and mm-hmm. synthetic hormones and things like that. But I wanted to know how embracing natural family planning changed maybe your outlook hmm. um, on what that was and also your relationship with your husband. Oh, yeah. I was a game changer. That's for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, for, well, for, for one thing, um, weirdly, I'm, I'm grateful for having had experience with the other side because I have a lot of Catholic friends who've never contracepted. And so they tend to romanticize it like, mm-hmm. oh, if only we could just be on birth control, da, 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 da. But since I've experienced the other side and I know that like there are side effects, there's a sense of alienation from your own body. It often, you know, it, it affects your mood. It can decrease your libido, which is this sort of horrible irony about it, you know, that you're trying, you're taking contraception so you can have sex when you want, but then you don't want to have sex. Um, so there's all this kind of baggage that comes with it that no one really talks about because it's treated as this sort of like magic pill that we just take or a little empowerment pill that women are supposed to take. Um, so learning natural family planning was incredibly powerful for me in understanding my body in a way that I never had and having much more of a sense of self-consciousness about myself as a fertile being. And that then changed also my attitude towards sex and also my husband's attitude who, um, you know, wasn't Catholic, but it changed both of uh, just changing our, like embracing natural family planning gave us an understanding of sex as being connected with life. And so this wasn't like a part of our relationship that was just sort of siloed and compartmentalized here, but it, it was sort of the, the fount of our relationship that also had resulted in children and, so for both of us, it meant adopting this attitude of openness to life, um, which in, you know, in kind of a Catholic understanding is the act of recognition that sex can lead to new life. And so you make behavioral choices in response to that reality, depending upon what's good for your family at the time. And so it was a huge kind of paradigm shift in our relationship. Um, and I think it also helped both of us realize which is kind of a hard thing to realize, ways in which we'd approached our sex life as sort of a way to kind of use each other in kind of subtle ways or have these expectations that, you know, it's just kind of a a utilitarian exchange in a way. Um, And so I think then doing natural family planning moved us into a much more holistic sense of of how, you know, conjugal union was connected to our marriage as a whole, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, no, it totally makes sense. It's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. You sound like it might be of interest to you know, <laughs> the stage of life in which you're at. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Well, this totally. is the perfect it's time to learn it. I mean, yeah. that's, right. this is the perfect time to learn it because I tried to learn natural family planning when I was in this state of waiting for my cycle to return after birth, and it Oof. was a nightmare. Yeah. But, um, and then I, you know, had a baby because <laughs> I was just going to say, that's how you get pregnant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So. But that ended up being also important part of my conversion. So, you know, it's all, right. I mean, it's, it's all for the good, but yeah, yeah. yeah use it. I mean, learn it now. <laughs> oh, we've yeah. already jumped in the world of NFP and 
talking about a lot of things that make people uncomfortable, but are actually really interesting and really beautiful. Like cervical mucus. I was just going to say cervical mucus. That's what always gets everyone. I'm talking about cervical mucus. Yeah. Like these are the conversations I have with my fiance. But how amazing is that? Like that your fiance knows something about cervical mucus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that's amazing. And where does this happen? Like not in feminist circles, you know, but in in kind of devout Catholic circles where a man actually learns about the intimate details of a woman's fertility. That's right. And learns to live according to that rhythm. And subordinates his desires to it. Like that's I mean, come on. Boom. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's good stuff. You know, that's an amazing and you know, to put it I mean, maybe to put it too simplistically, I think pointedly, the opposite is true of with the birth control pill, which is to basically subordinate a woman's cycle to Ma- mostly accommodate male desire. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. almost the exact opposite. Yeah. Hmm. Is there much I, – w- I thought of this when you, you mentioned that earlier maybe briefly. And I was once talking to a very committed feminist and she told me, well, you know, John, women are often the strongest supporters of the patriarchy. And I thought, yes, that's absolutely true, but it's you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wonder. I don't run around – um very often in feminist circles, has that kind of reading that you get from, I mean, kind of like pro-life feminists mm-hmm. or Catholic feminists received much of a hearing? What are people saying about it that like the pill and abortion are really part of the patriarchy? You do get some of you do get some of it. Not not so much the Catholic take on it. You get that in Catholic circles. Right. You know, some some women call you know, would call themselves Catholic feminists. Um and you definitely get that that critique there. But Increasingly, and this is I'm I'm giving a lecture tomorrow that will actually touch on a lot of this, but I am interested in how I'm seeing in secular outlets increasing research and recognition of the downsides of contraception and birth control. In general, these are still couched in a way where it's like, well, of course birth control has been good for women, but we should also talk about these downsides, right? So there isn't a kind of a wholesale critique, but more like the methods we have currently aren't perfect, right. but still this reticence to really depart from the party line that it's been the most amazing thing for women ever. But nonetheless, I'm encouraged by it, that at least right. that's part of the conversation that we're having. Hmm. Well, I have a question. <laughs> it has nothing to do with cervical mucus. Two to three inches <laughs> from your, mar- your mic. Two to three inches. Two to three inches. <laughs> Two to three inches. Okay. Yeah. So... I can't remember which podcast it was. I don't know if it was Catching Foxes or the Matt Frad Show, but you talked about existential thought and how it may have specifically your reference like Simone de Beauvoir mm-hmm. and reference like the second sex and mm-hmm. things like that and her outlook on that um, and what she was saying. So my question is, how did the rise of existential thought such as that contribute to the development of transgender of the transgender movement oh that's a great question so okay let me see if i can connect these dots yeah because i've i've looked at some kind of the existential roots of feminism especially through simone de beauvoir and namely her 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 idea that the meaning of human life is to gain transcendence as much as possible from the facticity of human human experience and for her um, that's much more difficult for women because biologically we're more enslaved to the species, as she would say. Um, so she's a very big fan of contraception and abortion and um, a socialist utopia that would give 
plentiful access to both. And, and so for her, I think, um, freedom, what freedom looks like for women is to function in society as much like men as possible. And I, I do think that that general belief is very much still part of mainstream feminist thought, which is why, you know, going back to Dr. Minard's point about participation in the patriarchy, right? And how feminism does that in ironic ways. So I, when I think about the origins of transgender, um, transgender anthropology, I think, not to sound like a crazy Catholic, like a um, conspiracy theory oh. Catholic, you know where I'm going with this? Like, oh, but I really do think that it, it starts with um, contraception and the embrace of contraception in society. Because once our social imagination became contraceptive, our understanding of what it means to be a man and a woman became very much separated from the body. Mm -hmm. And when it's separated from the body and our kind of reproductive capacities, then it becomes just really rooted in social stereotypes, which are more malleable. And so we have an understanding of what it means to be a woman is not, you know, the a, a female with the capacity to be pregnant, but it means like wearing a dress and having long hair and these these kind of social signals of femaleness. But then this understanding of gender comes in where that's all that it means to be a man and a woman. Because if you if you have a concept of gender that's really uprooted from the body and biological sex, then it becomes much more possible to kind of step into this box by inhabiting and displaying the stereotypes um, or feeling a deep connection with those stereotypes, feeling that those stereotypes express one's authentic self in a way um, that maybe the other box of stereotypes doesn't. So I think that that was really kind of the step um, that eventually led us down this road is uprooting gender from the body. So I'd like to bring in a couple of questions actually from our wives. So Mrs. <laughs> Minert. And Mrs. Pedraza actually cooked up a couple questions for nice. you. Um, <laughs> they both actually have to do more with your family life. So, like, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, you know. But um, to begin with, from my wife, Adrian, she is wondering, what advice would you have for mothers in trying to form their children in the faith, just from your own experience of motherhood? Oh, man. <laughs> I am so trying to I know what the out. other question is. It's when do you know you're done having children? <laughs> is it? That was one of the ones that Katie asked. Oh, interesting. That's also <laughs> an interesting question. Um, so the formation of children, I mean, that's something I'm asking myself all the time. I didn't grow up Catholic, right? So I'm very much trying to learn that well. And um, my husband is not Catholic, it's just complicated. It's sort of complicated. He's he is uh he's more of a practicing Catholic than most American Catholics. And he we go to mass together, he sings in the choir, we pray as a family. Um but you know, he's he's a he's a slow builder, he's a very kind of skeptical thinker, and it takes him a long time to trust. And so I think he's he's still very much is not sure about trusting the the church as this kind of authoritative um body. So but nonetheless, in practice, our family life um, has has a lot of Catholic elements. And I think what I try to do, I want there to be a kind of liturgical rhythm to our family life. 
Um, I want cat that just the, the, I guess the beauty of Catholicism to be just sort of infused into, um, into the house and into how we interact as a family. And so we have like this little home altar in the corner of our living room where we have some icons there and, you know, we'll light candles and pray together. Well, sometimes like Michael and I will pray while the kids are just like, blah, you know, running around <laughs> in circles and like jumping on the couch and, um, they're, they're still pretty young. So, um, and you know, one thing I wonder about too, like at what point do I like sit down and have more like formal theological discussions with my six year old, you know, about like, so transubstantiation, you yeah. know? So, yeah. um, I think right now I have a tendency to almost want to go into the weeds too quickly rather than starting with just very simple statements like, oh, you know, see that, you know, see what the priest is holding up there? That's Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, without feeling the need to then go on and explain like, okay, now how do we know? That? You know, they're like, yeah. how is this possible? Well, you know, I mean, let's talk about substance and, you know. It's anyway. point of the academic. I know, I know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's real. So, um but I think probably the most important thing we can do is model an active faith life and also give them a sense, I think, of like respecting children's freedom as well. I think sometimes maybe there's an impulse of wanting to just control or force things as parents, and I think that really can backfire. Um, something I've been thinking a lot about lately is is kind of the truth about how our children aren't really ours. They are these eternal beings that we've cooperated with God to create and they've been entrusted to our care, but they're his and they're not ours. We can't own them or program them. Um, And so I think there also has to be a sense of trusting in God um, as well, but it's tough. You know, it's something I'm definitely learning on the go. So I don't know if I have any like sage advice. (laughs) I sighed sighed really (laughs) loudly internally when you talked about children belonging to God. Yes. That's like the number one most freeing and difficult part of being a parent. If you can really see it as your kids, as eternal free beings. Yeah. And God's grace is what is going to redeem them. Not your efforts. Yes. It's simultaneously freeing, but also so difficult right. to do. But so it's so important. I was just reading, I've been reading very slowly Adrian von Speer's Handmaid of the Lord. Mm. And I was just reading um, this. I will read it literally like two paragraphs at a time because it's so juicy. That, mm. That's all I can take. But I was just reading the part about how, you know, Mary receives the incarnate word, and then immediately gives him away to the world, mm-hmm. right? And like that's kind of the paradigm of what parenting should be. You know, she never tries to kind of maintain this personal sense of ownership over Christ, but her mission is to cooperate in his mission, which means she must receive him and then give him away almost immediately, yeah. you know, and that's that's what we have to do as well. But at least she knew her son wouldn't embarrass her. <laughs> <laughs> but she didn't. I mean, the, that's no. He totally oh, in embarrassed mass, her. Yeah, he totally, yeah, he totally did. Like, like he got crucified. That's, <laughs> no, right? I was thinking more about the, you know, like showing up at the temple, like having yeah. been lost for three yeah, days, yeah, yeah. and you know, I find comfort in that story a lot. I'm like, Mary, three days. You only have one kid. You know, you can lose <laughs> a kid for three days and remain <laughs> sinless. Like that. I yes, that's so comforting. <laughs> that's so comforting. <laughs> yeah. 
So Mrs. Katie Minert, um, staying somewhat on the same wavelength, was interested uh, the parts of your book where you allude to your family members, both like your parents and your husband. Um, so I, I just imagined, for instance, there's a part where you said something about giving your mom a rosary and you're mm-hmm. like, you would be an awesome Catholic because <laughs> you're sort of like projecting right, right, on yeah. her. Or uh, I think the ending of your book is just fabulous. Not that I want to, you know, put you on the level of a children's author, but I did think <laughs> of uh, one of my favorite Henry and Mudge books by Cynthia Ryland, where normally, you know, kids books, they try to like resolve it in some like super yeah. happy way. But this one, the family just goes camping and it ends totally different than all the other books. They just mm. like drift off looking at the stars and that's mm. just the end of the book. And there was something about that that I was like, man, this kid's book is like, it like got me, you know? Yeah. And I had the same feeling reading mm. your last chapter in which you talked about your husband um, praying night prayer and then mm-hmm. eventually leading it at times. And then mm-hmm. um, you all going on for that walk in the mm-hmm. in the forest. And there's just something about this, you know, peaceful feeling that, I don't know, it was very uplifting, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a beautiful way to end the book. But I imagine... Um, just thinking about moments of like that, she was just interested. So like, what's going on with your parents and your husband mm-hmm. now that, you know, especially they're seeing you fly to Baton Rouge and give talks <laughs> on stuff yeah. like this, you know? Yeah. Well, my mom did become Catholic. So she became Catholic a year or two after I did. So, um, and so far that's just it, you know, in my, um, in my family. And, but my so my parents are both very, you know, supportive of me being Catholic and going on podcasts and things. So, <laughs> Do um, they find it weird that we all ask about them all the time? <laughs> are they Catholic yet? I know. Well, mo- you know, everyone always asks about Michael, which is fair. You know, I mean, his his um, story is tied up with mine, and um, and his story is still unfolding. Right? It's not not that ours are ever resolved. Really, I mean, mine's still unfolding as well, but. Um, there, yeah, there has been some amazing and very difficult work that God has done in Michael's heart over the past couple of years. So sort of after the book ends and, um, and at some point I would like to write about it and I think it's just too soon. (laughs) It's too Mm -hmm. soon, but, um, but, you know, Michael has come back to faith in a way that's been, uh, you know, pretty miraculous. I'll be, I'll be frank, um. And he's, you know, he's still very much figuring that out. And one thing I've, I've had to learn is that his, the, the kind of, he's doing this dance with God and his soul and it's not my dance. You know, it's not, you know, I, I pray for him and I love him and I sort of watch it unfold kind of from a distance in a way. I don't ask him about it because I, I've realized how easily I can have power in not a good way by making him feel pressured to become Catholic. And so similarly to learning how to respect the freedom of my own children's souls, I've really had to learn how to respect the freedom of my husband's soul and also that if and when he converts, it will be God's work and not mine. Like it's not my job to convert him. Um, and and I am seeing God doing that work of conversion in his life. So I know that it's happening because I there are times when God will sort of pull back the curtain, you know, and and I can sort of see what's going on and but I just need to trust. I mean, who knows? It might take 40 years. It might take two. I don't know. 
But I, I do have a sense of very deep peace that it will happen. And there is a kind of spiritual unity in our marriage now than there, that more so than there ever has been, because even though he's not sort of officially joined the church very much in, in practice and very much in his own thinking, he's, he's become quite Catholic. Um, and so we, you know, have theological discussions and we pray together. And these were things that we just didn't have, you know, during the the era when I wrote about the book. So, yeah, it's a beautiful way that you really approach that issue. I mean, I could, there's something sacred, right, in talking about God and your spouse. So, I mean, yeah. you, you sort of have this, uh, I don't know, appropriate distance is not the right word, but it just, I could tell it's like, she really loves that man, you know? Mm. So that's really cool. Well, to change things up a bit and to wrap this thing up. How do you know when you should stop having kids? (laughs) Oh, is this this a question that we have to make sure is answered? No, I was just joking. (laughs) For the wrap up, uh, I have devised a little game that Dr. Vali, you and Dr. Miner are going to play. So, this game is called Either Or. So, of course, Catholicism, <laughs> one of its hallmarks, is a sort of both-and approach yes. to the world, right? So, and to everything. So, it's not either or when it comes to faith and reason. It's both or but faith it is and works. When it's about- and- hanging or decapitation. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I don't know. So, I think. Could you be hung and decapitated? Yeah, that's true. That yeah, might be mutually right. exclusive. Yeah, I don't know. know. Well, funny that you should ask. <laughs> funny you should bring that up, Dr. Miner. So um, this game will force you to be a heretic of sorts, so you have to choose one or the other. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. And so we'll go ladies first on the first one, okay? Dr. Favali, pumpkin spice latte or just straight black? Straight black. Oh, man, that took some time. It did because right? this is, I actually have a very strong opinion about this, which is mm. that I drink my coffee black, but with one stevia. So it's like, I like a little bit of sweet, but I don't okay. like liquid dessert. So right. that's why I was a little torn there. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Miner. Black. <laughs> <laughs> no one is at the table is surprised. No. Yeah. I'd rather pumpkin spice the world, but yeah. <laughs> Bring on the pumpkin. If it was edible, I would go for pumpkin spice. I, I just like to eat my sweets. Uh, yeah, um, okay. Mm-hmm. I get that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Way to be executed. Impalement or the blood eagle? Wait, which type of <gasps> what's impalement? The, what's the blood eagle? Uh, Anal impalement? Say. Yes. Ooh. Vlad the Impaler style Ooh. impalement. What's the blood eagle? Uh, have you ever watched uh, Vikings? No. Uh, well, they basically break open your ribs and take out your lungs and put them on your shoulders. Are you still alive? In yes. This? Yeah. The bl- okay. Yeah, yeah. I see it. I see. In it. both, you're still alive. So, some for kind of dis- a so then, what's the of other time. kind of impalement? Impal- like, yeah. Like well, you basically um, um, they they stick a a spike up your rear end. The that's, other one. That's a little. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I always say. I don't care what it is. It's just a little I want bit. The other one. <laughs> a little bit shorter, taller than you are, so you can like push yourself up with your toes. But eventually oh you get tired and you start to like sink down <laughs> yeah, and no, no, it no. just goes and it like pushes one. your organs This is horrible. Away. Catherine is how, freaking out right now. Can we go back get, to pumpkin spice? That's what I was going to say. How did we get- Can we do like glitter spice? or rainbows? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, right. Do uh, a back rub wait. or a foot rub? <laughs> I, I choose the eagle thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, me too. Both, sure. okay. Oh, yeah, I'd be disemboweled or whatever. Y'all are harrowing. so similar. Yeah. I mean, none of them sound good, but <laughs> right. the butt eagle thing sounds just... Does okay. it sound better? <laughs> Don't worry, we're going to get juicy here. Oh, we're oh we're Wait, get what juicy. about more juicy better than what the blood words eagle? you use for the either of these? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Edith Stein or John Paul II? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> about what? No, no, there's Life. no about what. Just there's the, no just about what. Moral theologian ask about what. John Paul II. How's that? Same? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. yeah. JP2 was a Thomist using the phenomenological method. Edith Stein was a phenomenologist. Mm-hmm. Spoken like a Thomist. Pope Leo the Thirteenth <laughs> or Benedict the Sixteenth? Benedict. Leo. <laughs> Why is that, Dr. Minard? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that. The good place or the office? The office. The office. I haven't actually seen The Good Place, so okay. oh, you all should. Right, that's I know, I know, I know. My husband told me that as well. So. Yeah, we're all big fans at this table. We Wait. like to push hot dogs up people's noses. That's right. <laughs> Give it your best Sean the Demon voice, though. No. That was perfect. Wait, <laughs> best way to go out. Zombie apocalypse or giant asteroid crashing into the earth? Zombie apocalypse. I'm waiting. For, I am so ready for <laughs> oh. this. Yes. What what would be your defense weapon of choice? Well, it's a very sharp instrument for impaling because you gotta like get in their heads. You don't <laughs> that's want because right, right. guns you rely on ammo. You want like a really good sword, ah, double edged but yeah. light. That's a good point. Ooh, yeah, double edged and light. Yes, yeah. two of them. Ooh. one in each hand. Nice. <laughs> and Doctor Miner. Oh, same zombie apocalypse. Zombie I've been apocalypse. practicing. On Resident Evil since the mid nineties. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of practice. Okay. Is it just Resident Evil One, or have you moved up as it's? Oh, I moved up with them. I think the last one I played was Four, which was about two thousand five, six, <laughs> on the Wii. You're so old. I was. <laughs> I know. I've been there since the beginning yeah. of gaming. Of time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, next up. Twitter or Instagram? Oh, Instagram. Twitter is is I mean, I'm actually not on either, but if if someone said you will be blood eagled if unless you join a social media platform, <laughs> I would choose Instagram over Twitter for sure. Cool. That way you could see pictures of everyone's food. That's awesome. <laughs> it's usually better than what you get on Twitter. Dr. Yep. Miner? Am I supposed to be good or sinful? Because I, I'm inclined to the vice of curiosity. Uh, so I'm on Twitter, but I never tweet just because I, I want to watch things burn. <laughs> <laughs> and burn they do. Hildegard of Bingen or Catherine of Siena? Hildegard. Catherine. I love them both so much, but I gotta go with my girl, my girl Hildegard. Uh, why do I have to be a heretic? Catherine's dialogues are like Thomism with a heart. They're awesome. Mm-hmm. That's all. Well said. <laughs> but, you know, Hildegard talks about like, you know, like weird things about bodies, which I That's just true. love. She's like, she's very bodily yeah. and draws like cool pictures. She's awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
and her chant. She wrote chant music. Yes, that's so her cool. music too, which is beautiful. That's Catherine drank singing. pus. She drank did. The pus. I know that was so intense. That's yeah. intense. <laughs> very bodily. Yes, yeah. also oh. very bodily. <laughs> <laughs> On the pilgrimage we went to, um, that Elise and I went to, and uh, part of it we spend around Assisi. And the lady who owns the villa that we stay at is this artist, really like somewhat famous too. But she shows us her studio if she likes you. And she liked us. <laughs> and like she says she just plays Hildegard's chant like while she does her mm-hmm. painting. And I yeah. was just like, this is sweet. Okay, next up, Avengers or Christopher Nolan's Batman? Christopher Nolan's Batman. I don't know. Not even a contest. You haven't watched any of the Dark Knight movies? Wait, they're the new ones? Yeah. Oh, well, I've only I've seen the new Batmans. I've never seen any of the Avengers. Ah, uh, so you're going to be tipped towards the Batman movies? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Gnosticism or Pelagianism? Mm. Two of Pope Francis's favorite. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I see where you got these from that CDF document. Uh, I just, yeah. Probably Gnosticism. Pelagianism sounds so stressful. I agree. Mm. You know, I mean, if you're going to go heretic, at least give yourself a pass. That's right. And you can be a part of like a secret sect with like passwords and melons and like the three aeons and 20 gods. <laughs> and I yeah. don't know. Sounds kind of fun. 30 aeons, I think. Yeah. For that's right, at least. Yeah. My wife and I used to have a debate about whether you'd making it opposite, give up your free will or... Oh, I forgot the whole thing. Just cut that out later. <laughs> What's crazy is that those 30 aeons are mediators who do something. Like, what are they? All 30? Do, do something? Between unity and materiality, there's like an infinite amount of multiplicity. That's the whole problem. You got to get from the one to the many, and now you just got to have all these mediators. So they named 30 of them. Yeah. Why not? Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. If you never read against... The Heresies by Irenaeus. The first few chapters, he's basically just making fun of all of the Gnostic names they give to the Aeons. Oh, I've yeah. never read that. That yeah. sounds Good fun, source though. of uh, kids' names. No. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> Yet, I'm pretty sure no one will have those names if you pick them. That's If you right. want to be super hipster, that's, that's the number good way one. to go. Uh, writing a dissertation or your first year of teaching? Writing a dissertation. Absolutely. <laughs> I would never go back to my first year. Do you remember my first intro class? A third of my class dropped. Another third failed. And then there were the other 10 who somehow survived. I wish everyone could see Catherine's face right now. It was really bad. Can you Like your first class here that you taught? Yeah. 10 people dropped. 10 failed. What did you make them do? Something ridiculous. Yeah, you, that's what happens yeah. when you're fresh out of grad school. Yeah, you're like, you're I'm like, so excited. Like, hey, yeah, I'm going to read stuff. the whole Summa Theologica. You know, it's kind of yeah. hard, but you'll get through <laughs> it. You can do yep. it. Yeah. 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 What was your first year? 2014. Ooh, you're old. Good. What, are you looking at stuff up there? <laughs> Does that sound like a long time ago? I know. Oh, you're a my professor, 2014. When you were born, I was waking up early to play SNES. It was 99 that I was born, so... Oh my gosh, sure. that's yeah. way later than I thought. I was, I was playing GameCube. So. Wow. I was <laughs> being born. Yeah. I was being born. <laughs> Straight out the womb. Is that what she said? GameCube. <laughs> that's my album that I'm dropping soon. I don't think what? GameCube Straight out the womb. Oh. Is that a Tupac song? I wouldn't be surprised. Hmm. 
Okay, I've got two more. Would you rather have squirrels in your attic or raccoons in your treehouse? Squirrels in the... You know what I'm going to pick. Oh, we all know. <laughs> Raccoons in the treehouse. Mm, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, same. I can deal with those. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you may have experienced this, Dr. Minor. How many raccoons have I killed in the last two months? Oh, no. Six. <laughs> <laughs> According oh to uh, Baton Rouge, none. None, right? Zero. Zero. Are they a protected <laughs> no. disease here? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I may or may not kill them in illegal ways. Oh my gosh. Do you blood eagle them? Oh my god. Raccoon. I did cut the tail off one just to show the boys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't bad on me, right, my professor? Oh, right. 2015, you're actually average. Hey, according average. to them, average. Hey, not bad. Not Roll bad. The right that's face. about as most that's as much as I can hope for. Average. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That is not true. He, you are a good teacher. I'm I have seen you in action. I'm a, you think I'm going to get taller? No way. <laughs> average. Your squatting and deadlifting are not average. They're above. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> uh, Benedict option or Dominican option? Dominican option. <laughs> See, this is designed to split me in half. Yeah, well, either or. Can I farm as a Dominican? I'm still going to engage. <laughs> so you pick Dominican option as long as you can farm? Yes. Okay. Fair enough. That's the end I of the game. I don't want to retreat. I just want to grow things. Excellent. Yeah. Like Wendell Berry style? Oh, my. Oh, like a... Would I move out to a and homestead if I could? Yeah, somewhat off the grid. Yeah, I absolutely would. You would? Yeah. Yeah, I would too. Hmm. But I don't think that's, I don't know. I'm not going to do it though. I can't afford to do it. Yeah. yeah. Is that the only thing stopping you? Yeah. Me, yeah. I don't know. I'd disappear. <laughs> <laughs> and so would the raccoons well, <laughs> living I mean, in your area. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> raccoon sausage, barbecue raccoon, raccoon gumbo. I don't know. What do y'all think? Not on board. That is something that people eat. I know. So the raccoon population would go down if Dr. Minot goes off the grid. <laughs> And on that note, uh, let's wrap this up. You, uh, Thanks for joining us, everybody. You can find us on Twitter at DunsPod. And Dr. Meyer will watch you burn as you tweet things. Or you could email us at DunsPod at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.